This podcast is brought to you by Norfolk Southern. With technology like data crunching supercomputers and NASA like dispatch centers, they are developing a safer, more reliable railway that is redefining the world of transportation. See how Norfolk Southern is reimagining possible at nsrailtech.com. From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. In the midterm election, Democrats won a majority in the House of Representatives for the first time since 2008, when they retained control on the day Barack Obama won the presidency. They did it with a diverse array of candidates, including more women than ever before. Among them, the first Muslim women, Rashid Tlaib in Michigan and Ilhan Omar in Minnesota, the first Native American women, Deb Holland in New Mexico and Sharice Davids in Kansas, and the first married lesbian with children, Angie Craig in Minnesota. They secured their win mainly in the cities and suburbs, in areas where right-leaning voters are most skeptical of Trump. CQ Magazine this week has profiles of all the new representatives, which currently number about 90, pending races too close to call. To tell us about some of them, I have two CQ reporters with me today, Mel McIntyre and Greg Turiel. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Greg, there was a squeaker in Georgia's 6th district, where Democrat Lucy McBath defeated Republican incumbent Karen Handel. This is a district that voted overwhelmingly for Republican presidential candidates in 2008, John McCain, and 2012, Mitt Romney. And it even favored Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton in 2016. So how did Lucy McBath win? Well, that is a great question. I'm actually, so I'm from that district, and I am still honestly kind of shocked that Lucy McBath was able to defeat Karen Handel in the race. So McBath won, I think, in a few key ways that set this race apart from previous competitions in the Georgia Six. These are very uh, affluent, educated suburbs just north of Atlanta. These have been historically Republican for the last 30 years since the district has been in that area. I think there were several things that were different in this year's competition, the first of which was just the simple suburban backlash against Donald Trump. We saw this not just in Georgia, but we saw this in suburban areas across the country where sort of opposition to Trump, both from Republicans that are sort of skeptical on his messaging and also the opposition he generates among Democrats, leading to a much stronger Democratic turnout in these suburban districts like the the Georgia 6. Right. You were mentioning how uh, earlier how Mitt Romney and John McCain had just won this district overwhelmingly, but Donald Trump barely squeaked by, beat Hillary Clinton by one percentage point, indicating that a lot of the conservatives in this district were never Trumpers. Right. I think um, that's these are Republicans, you know, they're fans of John McCain, they were fans of Mitt Romney. Donald Trump's messaging never really took root here. And I think you've seen that where the Republicans were not as enthused, but the Democrats who live in this district, which is an increasingly educated and increasingly diverse district, those Democrats turned out. We saw the turnout for this race in a mid-year, in a midterm off-presidential year, 
the turnout was almost as high as it was during the 2016 presidential election. That is very surprising. Right. So that high turnout indicates an increased um, interest in the race. And a lot of that came from this Democratic opposition, I think, to Donald Trump that has been growing in these suburban areas. And Lucy McBath, an African-American woman, woman uh, the winner here, she was, in a, in a sense, too, riding on the coattails of a very strong gubernatorial candidate for the Democrats. That's right. Um, you know, so Georgia had one of the highest profile governor's races um, where Stacey Abrams, an African-American woman, the former minority leader of the Georgia House, was trying to um, win the governor's mansion. And even if it, she does not win that election, which seems more and more likely that she might not be able to pull it out, but she helped a lot of candidates down the ticket. So I think that organization, the get out the vote effort that Stacey Abrams and the other sort of coordinated Democratic campaigns helped in this district, which was already much less secure for Republicans in the wake of the 2016 race. Right. I mean, we've seen the, the strength of the African-American vote when it comes out in force for Barack Obama and now for Lucy McBath. Mm -hmm. um, she has an interesting and tragic story. I never imagined that I would be here before you today. And just six years ago, I was working as a Delta Airlines flight attendant. Woo! And I was even looking forward to retiring by now. <laughs> and then on November 23rd, 2012, I got the call that no parent should ever, ever have to get. Tell us about the tragedy that befell her and how it became a part of her campaign. So Lucy McBath, um, her son, Jordan Davis, was a teenager. He was killed in 2012 in a convenience store in Florida after he got into— a, it, was, it was an argument yeah, it was over an argument music. over music. Right. And his, he, was, he and his friends were playing music. He and his music. friends were playing music too loud, and he, uh, there was an, an argument was started, and um, he was shot and killed. After this, uh, Macbeth became an outspoken advocate for gun control. She became um, a spokes, uh, spokeswoman for the gun control groups Every Town for Gun Safety and Moms Demand Action. So this raised her profile at the national level. She spoke at the um, 2016 Democratic Convention on the issue of gun control and preventing gun violence. So that raised her profile among national gun control groups who sort of saw her as one of their poster candidates for this election cycle. That helped her with fundraising. It helped her with mobilization. It helped her with logistical support all throughout the campaign that the national gun control advocacy groups were coming out to help Macbeth uh, put this race over the top. Yeah. And this is uh, her, her son's killer, Michael Dunn, claimed it was an act of self-defense. A Florida jury didn't believe that. They convicted him. But it became a cause celebrate for the Black Lives Matter movement and showed the sort of dangers that black youth face going about their day-to-day -day lives. The, the other point um, about this race is that Karen Handel, the Republican incumbent, was only elected just a year ago in what was a race that became a national sensation. You had Tom Price, right, the longtime incumbent, was selected by Donald Trump as the Health and Human Services Secretary. He left the seat. There was a special election. Tons of money came into the race, and Democrats were hopeful of winning then, but didn't, right? Right. Um, that was the, the special election last year between Karen Handel and her Democratic challenger, John Ossoff, which 
was a race that attracted a lot of national attention and a lot of national fundraising money. Um, I think it's still the most expensive congressional House race of all time. Um, so it's interesting that that was a race that attracted such a high profile and, you know, the Republicans held the seat. But this year, it was a race that was very far down on a lot of people's watch lists, but it actually produced that Democratic turnover. And I think one of the key other things that helped McBath win this year, you can't discount the, in some ways, the precedent set by John Ossoff and his campaign during the special election. The people that helped organize for Ossoff didn't go away after that special election ended. They were still there in the district. So when 2018 came around, you had the organization, you had the sort of party campaign machinery already in place for a do-over. And so, Handel, indeed, was uh, not a longtime incumbent, had just been there a year, making right. her perhaps more vulnerable than others. So, Greg, Democrats took a lot of criticism for putting money into races where they seemed like they didn't have much of a chance of winning, like the Stacey Abrams run for governor in Georgia like uh, Beto O'Rourke's run for the Senate in Texas. But in a way, uh, those races may have helped people, although they lost, it may have helped people down the ballot. House members who won, like Lucy McBath, or like uh, some of the Texas Democrats that won House seats. Right, sure. And, and I think this is something that you, know, you always have to take into consideration, is the impact of high-profile, top-of-the-ticket candidates that can help people further down the ballot. You know, I don't think the turnout in the Georgia 6 would have been as high if someone as high profile as Stacey Abrams hadn't been running for governor. And I don't think some of these uh, suburban Texas districts would have flipped if Beto O'Rourke hadn't been helped with the mobilization and the uh, enthusiasm. And I think it also is important to keep in mind that even though they might not have won these races, it's just important I think if the Democrats are serious about becoming you know, competitive in states where they haven't been competitive in the last few decades, they're going to need to keep putting up candidates and just get people used to the idea of having a Democrat on the ballot that is a serious contender. Right. I mean, in Texas, you had uh, Beto O'Rourke lose, but you had longtime incumbent Republican House members also lose to upstart Democratic challengers like Colin Allred's defeat of Pete Sessions in the a Dallas area district and Lizzie Pennell Flesher's win over John Culberson in a Houston area district. So there you go. You're listening to CQ on Congress. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, NPR One, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. We will take a short break now for a word from our sponsor. You may know Norfolk Southern is the leading freight rail company that powers our nation's economy. But did you know they're also the innovation leaders that are reinventing the railroad as we know it? Using automated computing platforms, their freight rail network safely orchestrates the movement of hundreds of trains, while their data-driven predictive models can foresee maintenance problems weeks before they occur. And their virtual reality simulators are training crews more safely and effectively. With an array of new tech, Norfolk Southern is reimagining what's possible. Learn more by visiting nsrailtech.com. Com. And I'm back now with Greg Toriel and Mel McIntyre, CQ reporters, talking about the newly elected Democrats in Congress. 
Mel McIntyre, I'm going to turn to you now. You covered the race in New York's 19th district, which is in the Catskills, south of Albany, but well north of New York City. It's an agricultural district of a lot of um, woodland in the district. They've elected a black man, a former rap artist, Antonio Delgado. How did that happen? Yeah, so this is a district that both sides really view as sort of a microcosm of the country. This is one of those districts that is very emblematic of the U.S. as a whole. Um, It's a majority white district. The median income is a little over $61,000. In 2008 and 2012, they voted for President Barack Obama. In 2016, they voted for President Donald Trump. Antonio Delgado won with about 50.2% of the vote over incumbent Republican John Faso, who was a freshman. He earned about 47.3% of the vote. You mentioned Delgado's previous career as a rap artist was a weird but big issue in this campaign um, that the national Republicans and John Faso focused in on. Um, Delgado is, he's got an impressive resume. He went to Harvard Law School. He was a Rhodes Scholar, a lawyer at one of the nation's top lobbying firms. And I think what most people across the nation could tell you about him is that he had produced a rap album under the name A.D. The Voice in 2007. Well, Faso ran an ad against it, and some thought it, it smacked of racism because it said this kind of rap lyrics, that's not what people in this district like. Uh, this is not what we're about. Exactly. Yeah. Republicans, you know, they attacked his lyrics as being sexist, defensive to police, attacking 9-11. Um, and Delgado was pretty unapologetic about this. He sort of said, yes, I did this. I also have all of this. I would like to talk about health care. Making sure that we provide universal health care for everybody, affordable quality care. Which is what you saw Democrats across the country doing, saying, yes, that's great. You can say all of this, but I want to bolster the ACA and protect pre-existing conditions and talk about my Republican opponents vote to repeal parts of the ACA. In this district also, before FASO, you mentioned he's a freshman. It was represented by Chris Gibson for quite a while. Chris Gibson was routinely the most moderate uh, Republican in the House of Representatives. So despite its demographics, despite its location, this was, this is a swing district. Yes, it's very much a swing district in terms of, you know, your Republican-Democratic divide of voter registration. It's about even, and a big swath of the district is registered as an independent also. Okay, and so you, uh, in your day job, cover health care. How did that issue play here? Uh, you, you saw Republicans a bit on the defensive, saying they would protect uh, people with pre-existing conditions, uh, and Democrats really hammering away at the fact that Republicans tried to repeal those protections when they um, went after the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. So when Republicans in the House voted last year to repeal the Affordable Care Act and replace it with the American Health Care Act, one thing that I remember is that Democrats on the floor broke into a chorus of that song, na-na-na-na, hey-hey, goodbye. Um, And a few months later, Antonio Delgado was actually one of the first Democratic challengers on my radar. He was in a Big primary, a lot of interest in running to running in this race. Like you said, it's a swing district. So a lot of interest in the Democratic primary. He came out with a very salient ad featuring a woman in the district who had a pre-existing condition talking to John Faso. And in the ad, John Faso said, yes, I promise I will vote to support this. I want to protect your pre-existing conditions coverage. It's very important to me. And the woman basically saying, you broke this promise that you made to me. Um, It was one of those first ads that we ended up seeing a lot of ads like this across the country of people with pre-existing conditions talking about this. And Democrats were very effective in making this a health care election and talking about health care, despite whatever Republicans and President Donald Trump wanted to talk about otherwise. 
Greg, I'm going to turn back to you. You were our guy here on election night responsible for writing profiles of winners that we had not anticipated. And in our new member guide, we try to anticipate everything, everyone who has a chance, and we write a profile. But we had not foreseen Kendra Horn's win in the Oklahoma 5th District. She beat a second-term incumbent Republican Steve Russell. Trump won the district handily in 2016, and Mitt Romney and John McCain also won big in the prior two presidential elections. So how did Horn do this? Yeah, this, I think, was a win that caught a lot of people off guard. You know, Kendra Horn seemed to come out of nowhere on election night. It was a very close win. She only won by about 3,000 votes. But, and I think what was very surprising about her win was that for someone running in Oklahoma, she won on a fairly standard Democratic Party platform. We changed the conversation. We changed the way campaigns are run in this state because we got out, we talked to our friends, we talked to our neighbors, we talked to people about issues that are important in our day-to-day lives, about health care and making sure we're protected from insurance companies and big pharma. I wouldn't call her a very progressive, but she's in support of the Affordable Care Act. She wants Medicaid expansion in Oklahoma. She wants to reduce the cost of higher education. She's pro-gun control, which doesn't strike me as something that would fit very well in Oklahoma at all. Right. This but. district, though, it's, it's important to note, this encompasses Oklahoma City. So if you got a, a semi-urban district in Oklahoma, this is it. Right. And, and I think that is one of the things that helped Horn pull off this upset was the fact that, like we have saw in so many other races across the country, people in urban and suburban areas really turning towards the Democratic Party and voting out Republican incumbents. I think another thing that was very different about this race was... Turnout. Horn got more votes in Oklahoma County, which is just the part of the district where Oklahoma City is. She got more votes in that part of the district than the Democratic candidate in 2016 got in the entire district during his 2016 run. So I think there you saw an interesting shift, whereas in places like the Georgia 6, the turnout was up. Here, the turnout was actually lower than it was in 2016. Which is which, what you would expect. Right. But, but it makes uh, motivated voters very important. Exactly. So I think what we saw was, even though the turnout was down, the places where it was not down as much compared to 2016 were those urban areas in Oklahoma City where you are likely to find those uh, Democratic voters. And Kendra Horn, she, she has a lot, deep roots in Oklahoma, was born there. Mm-hmm. But she Seventh also, generation Oklahoman. Right. At, but at the same time, she worked uh, for a former congressman, Brad Carson. She'd gotten into the aerospace mm-hmm. industry, moved out to Colorado and ran a yoga studio in Boulder, the liberal enclave of Boulder for quite a while. I, I think if you're going to have this candidate win anywhere in Oklahoma, it's going to be this Oklahoma City district. But, but even then, that's still not to say this was an easy race. O- Oklahoma City hasn't sent a Democrat to Congress in almost 40 years. So this was still just an out-of-the-blue out of accomplishment. Yeah, all of these candidates, I think, will be top Republican targets two years from now. Thank you both for coming on our show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. 
And thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall.